Uh, it's my pleasure now to do something kind of fun, and that's to um, introduce our guest speaker for this morning, who's been a man I've respected from afar for, for many years. Uh, Dr. Daryl Bach is an interesting scholar in that uh, he's the scholar of choice for basically documentaries and secular um, people out there. Whenever something rises to the surface in culture, that becomes debatable. And so when you're kind of the, the one selected from amongst a peer group of really, really smart guys, um, it's pretty profound. So when the Da Vinci Code comes out or they find uh, the gospel of uh, uh, Judas or another Gnostic gospel, you'll find Daryl Bach being interviewed and being able to write uh, very thoughtfully on these subjects. Uh, he's an incredibly uh, reputable scholar. He's one of the world's leading New Testament scholars. He studied at Dallas Theological Seminary and then got his um, PhD from uh, University of Aberdeen. He's the Humboldt Scholar from Tübingen University and basically has just received a lot of acclaim for his scholarly work on Luke's, uh, Luke and Acts, um, as well as writing over 20 books, several of which are New York Times bestsellers. And so it's pretty uh, neat that we get to have Dr. Bach with us this morning sharing on the gospel. And if you really want to know um, when scholarship gets fun, stick around for Redux and ask questions of Dr. Bach and see uh, how a guy can give five-minute answers pulling from all these different disciplines that literally will change your life. And so um, I'm really excited for Redux. I'm really excited to have Dr. Bach with us this morning. It's a real treat. And I would just invite uh, Dr. Bach up this morning. Would you give him a, a warm welcome? Well, let me give you a good Texas greeting. How y'all doing? Uh, I don't have a get-up, okay? I just came with a mustache and a beard, okay? And I've been married 36 years. It's a real privilege to be here in Bend, Oregon. This is my second trip to Oregon. It's been several years since I've been here, and every time I come, I'm reminded how beautiful this state is. Um, flying into the state is a whole nother matter. Uh, we uh, took a little puddle jumper from uh, Portland into Redmond, and uh, I don't know why they call it a puddle jumper. It's more like a roller coaster ride, but it's a pretty exciting thing to be a part of, and we are here, and I appreciate God's grace. So, uh, so the very fact that you can fly into Bend, Oregon and survive shows that God is at work. What I want to do today is talk about the gospel. I'm going to do that today, take questions after this service, and then tonight do a whole nother presentation. And it's all designed to ask the question, in part, does the church get what it pays for when it presents the gospel and it doesn't present the gospel clearly? My premise is, is that oftentimes, even when we share with people, we don't present the gospel clearly enough to make it obvious what the gospel, what the good news itself is really about. Any of you who know anything about the word gospel know that it comes from the word euangelion in Greek, and that word means good news. So what is the good news? Well, there are really a couple of ways you can present it. And the way it's often presented in the church is to say that the gospel is Jesus dying for my sins on the cross. 
Now, if you put that answer on an exam that I would give you, I wouldn't say it was wrong. I would just say, is that all there is? And yet, that's often the way we present it. Jesus died for your sins. If you believe that Jesus died for your sins, then you go to heaven. And so the idea is, is that it's like a transaction. You check the box, you punch the ticket, you take your reservation, and you wait at the airport. Okay? Meanwhile, there's a lot of stuff that happens in between, between the time you make that decision and the time God takes you to heaven forever and ever. Okay? Uh, in between, there's a whole lot of stuff that happens. And does God have anything to do with that? And does that have anything to do with the good news? That's what I want to ask about. Now, to start off, I want to take... Uh, how many of you out here... This is going to be an illustration for the over 40s, okay? So I need to see hands. How many of you are over 40 out there? I just want to get a sense of, okay, well, most of you will come with me. Those of you who are under 40, ask the over 40s after I do this illustration and you'll have a generational moment, okay? So, here it is. You know, years ago at sporting events, uh, speaking of sporting events, I'm really suffering speaking right now because my Houston Texans are playing the Baltimore Ravens in the playoffs, and I have no idea what's happening in the game. Anyway, at sporting events years ago, there used to always be a guy with a lot more hair than I have. Used to be rainbow-colored. And he would hold out a little placard, and that placard would say, John 3.16. Okay, which hopefully the people in the audience would know is a Bible verse. Okay? And the idea was is that hopefully they would go and look up John 3.16, and it's probably, if you, if you talk about sharing the gospel or talk about the gospel, it's probably the most well-known Bible verse about the gospel that people are aware of inside and outside the church. I mean, the rainbowed hair guy made that clear. And so, over 40s, isn't that, isn't that true? He'd always, and I don't know how he knew where the cameras were to line up to always be in the middle of the picture, just to the side of the guy batting, okay, to hold up that sign and go, John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believeth in him, I never use whosoever believeth in the same sentence except when I quote this verse, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. It's a simple verse. Jesus is sacrificed for our sin, and if we believe that, we have life. Now, I'm here to tell you that's not, not a part of the gospel. That's actually at the hub of the gospel. But for many people, that's all the gospel. And what I want to do in the time I have with you this morning is to show you that actually what Jesus dying on the cross is, is a hub or a door into what is really the full story of the gospel. And it makes a difference as we talk about it and as we share what the gospel is with people. Because when you make the gospel a transaction and a person responds to the transaction, they think they've done the deal. So, to do this, I want to take you to a set of passages in the largest portion of the New Testament that we have, Luke-Acts. Now, you might say, wait a minute, I thought Paul wrote more of the New Testament. I mean, after all, he wrote, you know, a whole lot of epistles. 
But you add up all those epistles and you put them next to Luke and Acts and you will find out that Luke actually wrote about 30% of the New Testament and Paul wrote about 28% of it. So by a nose, okay, Luke Acts wrote more of the New Testament than Paul did. So to start off, if you have your Bibles, turn with me, please, to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. My premise this morning is this, that Luke 3.16 is as important or more important to appreciating the message of the gospel as John 3.16 is, which makes it easy to remember because all you got to remember is 3.16. Luke 3.16 is as or more important to the gospel and the message of the gospel as John 3.16 is. And I need to set some context. In verse 15, we are told that people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah, John the Baptist. The picture is the River Jordan where John is baptizing and he's preparing people for the coming of the Lord and people are speculating, well, maybe John the Baptist is the Messiah. Could it be? Is it possible? You know, there was buzz, whatever the first century equivalent of buzz was. And they're contemplating it, and John answers the question. And only in Luke are we told that what John says in Luke 3.16 is in response to the popular question whether John might be the the Messiah or not. And so 3.16 says this, John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Bing, 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 bing. That's the answer to the question. How do I know the Messiah has come? How do I know God's new era has come? How do I know God's promise has come? The answer is the one who brings the Spirit of God is the Messiah and the bringer of the new era. And that's our clue to what's at the core of the gospel once we get through the work of the cross. Now let me unwrap this a little bit for you by asking you a question that I think you could pass even if you were just beginning at Kilns College. By the way, it's a wonderful opportunity you have here to have a college that offers classes in the evening, that allows you to come and sit and deepen your understanding in the Word. And so if you get a chance, take a shot at it. I mean... Take, if, it's, if you've thought, oh, theological education, that's, you know, that's for someone else, take a shot at it. Just see what happens. It might enrich your walk with God. Anyway, you sit here and, you, and you've, you've, you've got the, here's the question. Let's just get to the exam. Here's the question. What religious vocation did John the Baptist have? Okay, it's not a hard question. It's not a trick question. He was a, he was a, prophet. One more time, just for a little more enthusiasm. He was a prophet. How high up on the spiritual ladder is a prophet? Pretty high, right? Right? I mean, more than a pastor, more than an elder, more than a deacon. The only person that a prophet competes with in the church hierarchy is the church secretary. Okay? All right? That's it. So he's way, way, way up there. 
Now notice what John says in this verse. He says, But one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, comparing it to his water baptism. So here's John, way high up on the vocational ladder, about as high up as you can go without being a Messiah, and getting up there, he says, I am not worthy to untie the thong of the sandals of the one who is stronger than me who is to come. So there's a great gulf between John and the one who is to come. That's the point that he's making. In fact, culturally, the point is actually even stronger because of one point of background. In Judaism, you weren't supposed to become a slave. But should you become a slave, should that happen, there was one duty you were not to perform because it was viewed as too demeaning for a Jewish person to perform as a slave, and that was to untie the thong of the sandal of the master in order to wash his feet. Now, obviously, that has implications for a passage like John 13, where Jesus washes the disciples' feet before he goes to the cross, but it also has implications here. And the implications that it has here is, is that is that John, even as a prophet, doesn't feel worthy to do the most demeaning thing that a slave wasn't supposed to do for a master. That's the distance between Jesus and, and, and John, the distance between John, who is a prophet, and the Messiah to come. Why is this all important? What he's saying is this, that the core event of the new era is the coming of the Spirit of God. That the gospel is not just about forgiveness of sins, but what forgiveness of sins provides. Forgiveness of sins provides the Spirit of God. Because when you come to have eternal life, you not only possess something that gives you, uh, if you will, a life of duration, but you enter into a reconnected relationship with the living God that's driven and directed by His very presence within you. That is the good news. Now I want to prove it to you. Turn with me now to Luke 24. Luke 24, verses 44 and following. We are now on the other side of the crucifixion and the resurrection, and Jesus is in the, in the business of surprising His disciples by appearing in bodily form after his death, something that was regarded as, shall we say, unprecedented. And so he's in the process of doing this, and in verse 44 of chapter 24 it says, Then he said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the Scriptures. He told them, This is what was written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. That's the first thing, that he will, that he will suffer. The second thing is that he will rise. This is built around uh, three Greek infinitives. And then thirdly, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. There is the call to respond with a change of mind, a turning, if you will, for the forgiveness of sins offered in the name of Jesus because of his death. That's your hub. That's your cross of what the gospel is about. Why am I making such a big deal of this? Well, I'm making such a big deal of this because if you make the cross the center of the story, you leave out the journey that is a part of the experience that is the good news. 
And there are some people today who've so reacted to this that they want to make the journey the experience and they don't want to talk so much about the cross. Actually, need both. They both go together. And so here we have an allusion to the forgiveness of sins that is set up by the death of Christ. And then he goes on. It doesn't stop. You are my witnesses of these things, it says in verse 48. And then 49, it says, I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay until the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. He's basically telling them to wait in Jerusalem until they are clothed or enabled to carry out the life and ministry that God is calling them to have as a result of this gift that Jesus has provided. That's an allusion to what John was talking about, and that's an allusion to the gift of the Spirit coming on God's people to enable them to live the life, hear this, that God originally designed them to live. The good news is about living the life that God, as a creator, when he made you as a creature, created you to live. Well, but I don't see Holy Spirit anywhere in verse 49. That, is that, are you sure that's what that means? Turn with me in the next passage. Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Jesus is still in the business of appearing to them over the 40 days before his ascension. And in this scene, which is right towards the end of that period, Jesus says one more thing to them in verse 4 of chapter 1. It says, On one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem. That's exactly what he said in in 2449 of Luke. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water. Bing, 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 bing. That's Luke 3.16 coming at you again. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's what they're waiting in Jerusalem for. That's the power they are supposed to receive. The enabling ministry and work and presence and power of the Spirit of God, which is the gift of God, which generates the life, which allows you to take part in the journey, which is the good news of the gospel. Be reconnected to the Creator who created you. Okay, that's pretty cool. But we're not done. Acts 2. Acts 2. I want to make a point, and the point is is that Luke shows this all over the place. He keeps coming back to it. It's a little bit like a refrain that you sing when you sing a hymn. And he comes back to the chorus, and the chorus line is the same. That life in the new era is about the presence of the Spirit within us as a community. Not just me individually, but within all of us. And so... In Acts 16, Peter gives a speech when the Holy Spirit finally comes. This is the day of Pentecost. This is when the promise arrives. This is when the evidence of the new era becomes clear. And in this chapter, starting in 2.16, he gives a speech. And if I had time, I'd go through the whole speech, but I just want to highlight something because I have more passages to talk about. So in Luke 2.16, he starts in and he says, look, because some of the people said, you know, these people who are are testifying to the works of God in various languages. They're drunk because they were hearing languages they didn't normally hear. And in the midst of this, 
Peter begins by saying, no, this is what Joel promised in Joel 2.28. And in Acts 2.17, he says, In the last days I will pour out my Spirit on all people, and your sons and daughters will prophesy. And it goes through a long exposition until in verse 21 it says, And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he reviews the career of Jesus. He talks about Jesus of Nazareth. And then in the middle, he cites Psalm 16 to talk about the resurrection and to say that the, that the resurrection was predicted and that that's what's taken place with Jesus. And then in verse 30, he dives into what I want to zero in on. Acts 2.30, he says this, But David was a prophet and knew that God had promised him an oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into heaven, yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So what he's saying is, Jesus is raised. When he was raised, he went to the side of God to share in his rule and his reign. And in his rule and his reign, he's poured out the Spirit on his people who turned to him. And so in verse 36, he says this, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. How can they know that Jesus is Lord and Messiah? They can know that Jesus is Lord and Messiah because the promise of the Spirit that indicates that the Messiah is coming and that the new era is coming and that the good news is coming and that the promise of God is coming has come. Ding, 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 ding. That's Luke 3.16 coming back at you yet again. Or as we say in Texas, again. A-G-I-N. You do that right and you preach it from the pulpit. <laughs> Not done. Go to Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10, Peter is preaching to Cornelius. He's preaching to Gentiles for the first time. And in the midst of his message, he doesn't even get through his message. How rude for God to interrupt Peter's message. Peter's in the midst. He's on the way to presenting the gospel. And in the midst of moving towards presenting the gospel in Jesus, God interrupts the show. Look at verse 43. This is, he's, he's, he's making his turn to his punchline. Verse 43, all the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. It says, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. I thought this was going to be a promise for Israel. I thought this was going to be a promise just for a special group of God's people over here that he'd work with all the way back, to use the words of that great theologian Chris Berman, back, 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 to the time of Abraham. But if you think about that promise, in that promise was the idea that in you all the nations will be blessed.
The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they had heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And so he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked Peter to stay for a few days. And so he baptizes them because Peter is a good Jew. And Peter understands something. What he understands is this. That in the Old Testament, if you are unclean, if you are unwashed and unclean, you are not able to go to the temple and fellowship with God. But if you become clean, you can go to the temple and fellowship with God. So if the Holy Spirit can come and indwell Gentiles, that must mean, okay, this is called Jewish math, okay? That must mean those Gentiles must have been cleansed by God and His work. And those Gentiles must have had a response to Peter's message. He didn't even need to give an invitation. They just needed the Spirit of God. Just to confirm this, look at what is said in the next chapter, in Acts 11. In Acts 11, we get this. They're debating. Some people are complaining. How can you baptize Gentiles? You didn't send them to the temple. They didn't offer any sacrifices. They didn't do what we normally do to get reestablish our fellowship with God. How in the world could you possibly do this? You didn't, you didn't make them get circumcised, which is the sign of the covenant. How could you do this? And after recalling the vision that led him to go speak to Cornelius, he says this in verse 15 of chapter 11. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as He had come on us, at the beginning, that's an allusion back to Pentecost in Acts 2. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Bing, 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 bing. That is Luke 3.16 coming at you again, this time communicated by the Lord to the disciples, which they're now recalling because of this event. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave the same gift He gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think I could stand in God's way? To which they all said, that is a good question. doesn't say it in the text, but that's what it says. When, you, when they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, so then, even to Gentiles... God has granted repentance that, now watch this, that leads to life. The gospel's about life. It's ultimately about life. It's not just about forgiveness. It's not just that magic sheet we used to have when we were young. I don't know if they, they don't have this anymore because it's all gone digital. This is another over 40s illustration for which I do not apologize. But anyway, there's a little magic slate that you used to get. that used to have the cellophane sleets on it, you know, how, and you used to write on it, and then when you were all done, you pulled up the cellophane sheets and it all went clear. Okay, and some people think that's the gospel. You know, you got your sins and the list is long and big, and you come to Jesus in faith and you pull up the list and boom, it's all gone, and that's it. No, there's a whole other thing that happens on the other side. There's a whole thing of life with God. Yes, it lasts forever, but we're not just talking about something that has endless duration. We're talking about something of quality. It's eternal, not only because of its duration, it's eternal because of its source. I tell people, 
you know, eternal life is a pretty good offer depending on who you live with. If you're around someone for a long time, you can't stand eternal life, could be Hades. But eternal life has value because of its quality, because of its duration, because of its source. So even to Gentiles, God has granted the repentance to life. I'm not done. Go to Acts 13. Paul is in Pisidia, Antioch. It's a different Antioch from the one probably the church is named after. The Antioch that the church is probably named after is the famous church in Antioch of Syria that sent out the missionaries in Acts. That's my guess. But if you want a good number two, Pisidia, Antioch's not bad. And so we've got Pisidia, Antioch here. And in the midst, Paul gets up in the synagogue and he gives a speech. Watch this speech. It's really cool. Starts in verse 16. Verse 16 is usually pretty important. 2.16? 13.16? 3.16? Anyway. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors and he made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he entered their conduct he endured their conduct, rather, in the wilderness, and he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. He's marching through the Old Testament. He's starting with Abraham. He's going to the Exodus. From the Exodus, he's going to the wilderness wanderings. Then he's going to Joshua and Judges, and then he comes to the kings and the prophets. After this, God gave them Judges. That's the book of Judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. And the people asked for a king. He gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled for 40 years after removing Saul, he made David their king and testified concerning him. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I wanted him to do. So we've got Samuel, the judges, Saul, uh, David, and you think Solomon's next. I mean, he's just walking through the history of Israel, right? Look what happens. From this man's descendants, that is David, he has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as he promised. Whoops! What just happened? 2012, year of the Olympics. Going to be in London. What you just saw was a thousand years broad jump. Paul just left over a thousand years of Israel's history going from David to Jesus. He did not pass go. He did not collect $200. Why? Before coming of Jesus, John preached repentance. You should be getting suspicious. And a baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose that I am? I am not the one who you are looking for, but there is one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And if you've been paying attention, you know what the rest of this says. I baptize with water, but there's one coming after me. He will baptize with the Spirit of God. Bing, 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 bing. Luke 3.16 coming at you all over again. Well, I could go on. There's Acts 15. 
in which Peter repeats the expression in Cornelius, but I think I've hopefully made my point. And that is that as you move through the New Testament, a step at a time, at the center of the gospel is not just forgiveness of sins, but life. What forgiveness of sins is designed to do is to clear the brush and open a door and be the hub to life. A life reconnected to the living God, a life lived in the context of the grace and the forgiveness of God, a life that lasts for eternity but isn't waiting for a ticket to get onto a plane to someplace in the sky, a life that is designed to be lived the way God designed it for us to live from the moment, first moment of faith till the next moment of faith till the next moment of faith forever and ever. And it never comes to an end. The gospel is not about a moment. The gospel is about a journey. Now, if you have any doubt about this, and this is the last point I want to make, if you have any doubt about this, go to Paul. If I get Luke, Acts, and Paul, I get you 60% of the New Testament, I'll leave the 40% to you after the hour. Okay? So, turn with me now to Romans chapter 1. Verse 16. It's a verse many people memorize when they work in, in Romans and when they work with a memory program. It goes like this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes from the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And I read this verse poorly for years. Let me tell you how I read it. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the salvation of God to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. I had no idea what the word power was doing in that verse. And then one day it dawned on me that I should read Romans like a story and not as a letter. And that if I did that, the following is what emerged. If you go to Romans 1.18, you find people who are dead. This is a picture of death. <laughs> now, how much power does a dead person have? You just saw it. Zilch, nada, none, no power at all. You read through the book, you come to the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4, you hit justification being declared righteous through the forgiveness that Jesus Christ offers. And Romans does not stop at Romans 4. Romans goes on to Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. As many chapters, 5, 6, 7, and 8, as talk about the first half of the setup to the gospel, 1, 2, 3, and 4, where we're dead and we're justified. And in 5, 6, Seven and eight, you get life. The Spirit comes into the life, and now you're able to walk with the power and enablement of God that allows you to walk in His will and to live the way you were designed to live.
And so for a lot of people who struggle with how Paul connects to Jesus, particularly how Paul connects to the Jesus that we see in the Gospels, particularly how Paul connects to Jesus, how we see in the, who we see in the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because in John it's easy. John does all the heavy lifting for us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. This is CNN. Okay? Right there, the first verse, he tells you the story. But in the synoptics, they develop it, so it's a little harder. So sometimes we have a hard time seeing how Jesus connects to Paul, and it connects around this idea of the rule of God, the kingdom of God, the presence of God, the spirit of God, the life of God, the gospel. That's it. That's it. Simple formula. Forgiveness of sins plus the Spirit of God equals the gospel in life. Okay? Forgiveness of sins plus the Spirit of God equals the gospel and life. Don't forget it. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your goodness and your grace, for the richness of your salvation, for the privilege of being your children. And we pray that if we know you, that we might rejoice in the journey that we're a part of. That we're not waiting to go somewhere. We're not, we, we do anticipate being in your presence. And we do look forward to seeing you face to face. But you're with us now. You're with us in your spirit. You give us life. You give us power. You give us enablement, and that's good news. May we draw on that from day to day for the journey that you take us on. And if there's anyone here who's just contemplating that message, who's tried to make sense, what in the world is Jesus about? And what in the world is the New Testament about? And what in the world is this gospel that I hear about? One word. It's about life. Real life. Life lived is the way the Creator created creatures to live. If you're interested in that journey, come to Jesus for forgiveness of sins and place your faith in the work of God that will remain with you forever. It's a wonderful journey of grace. And we give you thanks for this in Jesus' name. Amen.